Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. This episode is Sandman number six, 24 hours, with a cover date of May 1989, with art by Mike Drigenberg and Malcolm Jones III. And again, we have a Sandman comic that we'll be talking about here with very little Sandman in it, but a lot of disturbing imagery. Yeah, this is a particularly gruesome issue with some serious adult content, so listeners can take that as a caveat of sorts if they like. And yeah, as you love to point out, Brent, this is again, right, an episode or an issue, I should say, that's not really about Dream. Instead, it's about this cast of characters who are new to this issue and they're not going to make it out of this issue either. And before we get into it, I I know that we had said last time that we would talk a bit about the historical John D, but he's actually not maybe in this issue quite that much either. So I think we'll have to kick that forward one more episode when we will actually have the showdown between John D and Dream that we've been building towards. But this issue opens with an establishing panel that lets us know that we are in the all night diner where we ended last issue. This is also our title page for the issue. And we're introduced to what's going to be the the, the narrative device for this story. We're going to get a a story about 24 hours in this diner, and it's going to be told to us hour by hour, with each hour getting even a a title or maybe a, a subtitle of its own. And hour one is titled, The Flies Walked Into the Web. And we start off with the, um, Waitress who's scrubbing down the counter. Her name is uh, either Bet or Betty, depending on how she's pronouncing that. Uh, there is no I. It's uh, B E T T E. So, well, I wondered about that too. We should say that right. This this is a diner. It's a pretty standard diner. But this is the second time that we've had a diner in in this in the, this volume of Sandman, right? We had John Constantine eating at that diner in London as well. And so I think that for Neil Gaiman, your standard American diner is kind of exotic or maybe at least iconic. And so I think he, I think this might be supposed to be Betty as well, because to me, that's a kind of name I would associate with an American diner from like a 1950s movie, but it is definitely spelled bet. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure either. I think part of uh, Neil's attraction to using diners, at least in, in this for this particular issue, is diners are an excuse to bring people who have a lot or very little to do with each other together in one place. Um, there's an interesting note that uh, Leslie Klinger had made in the annotated Sandman um, for this issue, in which he um, found Neil Gaiman's comments on the script as to why there's not any other employee of the diner we only ever see uh, bet throughout this. And Neil's quote is, this place doesn't get much passing business. I suppose it's probably just a big tax dodge for the mafia. That's why they keep it open. Betcha. It's very funny to me and very Neil Gaiman to come up with a completely different story idea that is not presented to us, the idea that the mafia is somehow involved with this scenario, as his brain canon, not at all in the page reason for why, oh yeah, I didn't ever put like a fry cook in there. Right, and she's serving real food. It's not like she's just serving pastries that have already been baked earlier that day. Like people are ordering eggs and sandwiches that are are being made uh, to order. So yeah, that's it. That's great. I hadn't quite noticed that there wasn't a cook, although I did think it was a sort of sparsely employed diner. Uh, that is interesting. I Maybe we should just be on the lookout for mob references uh, throughout the rest of Sandman, <laughs> I guess. Well, 
as you say, we are introduced here to Bette Monroe, who is the morning waitress here at this all-night diner. But we get inside of her head right away, right? We're, we're told that she really thinks of herself as a writer. And on her off days, she writes stories about her town, though... What's particular about her stories is that she is insistent on giving them all happy endings, even though the true stories that inspire her own are usually not happy at all. And so this is, I think, Gaiman having a little bit of fun kind of inverting Sherwood Anderson's uh, Winesburg, Ohio collection of stories in which all the stories have kind of unhappy endings or really sort of showing us the dark underbelly of a small town in the Great Lakes region of the United States. Here, we're getting someone doing uh, exactly the opposite. And we get a great line here about the, the the trick to writing stories with happy endings is knowing where to stop, because, of course, all stories actually end in death if you let them keep going long enough. Well, and here, uh, Klinger in his annotated Sandman again provides the Hemingway quote from Death in the Afternoon, uh, all stories end in death, and he is no true storyteller who does not tell you that. But yeah, um, we get here that uh, Bet views that she's not a waitress. She is a storyteller. Um, and it's by pretending that she is a waitress that people are opening up to her and they don't know this secret of hers, that she's really a storyteller. And I think that that's also the way a lot of folks often feel when they're at their day job, too, is like, this is not who I am. I am actually this other profession or uh, I have a different calling, um, but Bet seems to use it uh, as something to not feel sour about, but rather um, as kind of this secret thing that causes her to have, you know, even an inward smile and and keep on going about her day uh, with happy thoughts. Her stories are actually about her customers. And so working as the waitress is really right. There's opportunity for her to meet them and get to know all of their secrets and then turn them into her stories. And you know, from Gaiman's perspective, as the writer crafting his own story here, this itself is a device for Gaiman to introduce us to who these customers are. And the first one that we meet is Judy, who is waiting for her girlfriend, Donna. And I think Judy's great. She's wearing a a Joy Division jacket, which I think is a jean jacket, but might be a leather jacket. And on the, the back of it, it's got two interlocking Venus symbols. I love this jacket. I would like to have it for my own. But Bet does not approve of Judy and Donna's homosexual relationship, and, and this disapproval is on religious grounds, but she likes Judy quite a bit personally. The, and the jacket is this nice visual way of cluing us into all of this. There's also a collection of a, almost a dozen buttons on the front of her shirt, or front of her coat, one of which is for Rude Girl, um, so she's a big fan of ska music uh, and an anarchy uh, pin, so she's a big fan of the punk scene. Um, and so I think we were firmly rooted in the kind of personality that Judy wants to make sure that she's conveying to everyone. And even the interlocking Venus symbols, as you mentioned, Glenn, uh, they're very prominent on the back of her jacket. So she wants to make it very clear to everybody um, where she uh, envisions kind of herself. That's a great observation. It's not just art for the sake of us, the the people reading this comic book, right? This is an insight into who Judy is, that she wants people to know her identity. And all of these things are, I guess, in, the, in 1989, right, we would say that these are all subcultures kind of on the fringe of the mainstream culture, whether that's uh, being openly gay in some way, or also even just liking punk music, right? All of those things are kind of marginal in some way, but she is proclaiming those identities, uh, her membership in those marginal cultures as loudly as she can. 
And I think that's in big contrast to Bet, who, you know, has a kind of interior, her secret life is very much in the interior and she's, it is a secret, uh, versus Judy, who is living very much out loud. And there's not an indication that Judy particularly has secrets that she is holding from the world. Although later we'll find out that, uh, as with everyone, there's always something that is there a little below the surface. Yes, all of these people have secrets. And and the next character that we meet is a, a young man who's named Mark, and he is in town for a job interview at the Chemical Works. We don't get to know all that much about him, but we're going to learn a little bit about his goals and desires later. But there's also the Fletchers, who are a middle-aged married couple who dote on each other. I, this couple is pretty cute, but again, they're going to have some dark secrets as well. And we also meet Marsh, who is a grumpy truck driver whose wife, Marsha, uh, was a serious alcoholic and died in a mental hospital. And, and prior to that, Marsh had been the mailman, but he took his wife's death very hard and he wound up in jail for a time after committing mail fraud. And then the last person we meet, finally, the quiet little stranger in the corner seat. And of course, this is John D., who is armed with Dreams Ruby who is as menacing and creepy kind of as ever to us. Um, but it's interesting because Bet doesn't particularly react to his appearance. She just views him as the quiet little stranger in the corner and that he's been there all day since before she showed up even, um, just slowly nursing his coffee. So I mentioned that coffee is just cold at this point. Yeah, there's a real theme with coffee here in, in this story, actually. And I don't know, I think that's the number one job of a diner waitress, actually, is to constantly be refilling your coffee whilst calling you hun, right? At least that's my experience of it. <laughs> I think you're right. Well, now we, we come to hour two, which is entitled, He Was Forced to Act to Prevent Any of the Flies from Leaving. This is just a short bit in which we see John D. use the ruby to make the, the young man, Mark, decide that he doesn't care about his interview. And in fact, he does just actually want to sit here and keep drinking coffee in the in the diner which is our first kind of indication of something that's uh you know metaphysical or supernatural in some way power manifest which we've already seen this in prior issues but it's the first thing in this issue that takes things out of the mundane world for us is that um the creepy man is able to have power over people's minds in such a way that they'll forget the fact that they have an urgent need to be somewhere else and and just quietly sit back down Right. And this is also the first indication that this is going to be something of a slow build, that D is not necessarily here just to use this ruby on the people here in the diner. He is going to, and it's going to get gruesome, but that's something he's going to start later. For now, he just wants to keep them all here for some some purpose that's not explicitly stated by him. And at this point, when I was reading the comic this time, because I also knew where things went, but I think when I originally read it, but who knows? Um... <laughs> I felt really kind of increasingly had kind of the fear and kind of creepiness amped up here where someone could stop you from even kind of escaping yourself from it. It, it very much is kind of one of the darker kind of Twilight Zone or horror motifs of where you can't control your own actions and you're trapped, you know, despite the fact that you may somewhat be aware of things. 
And, and it's actually going to be a few more hours before we see that anyone in the diner is aware that something strange is happening. In, in the next hour, hour three, Judy is on the payphone because Donna still hasn't arrived. And this is where we learned that they had a big fight last night and Donna left in the, the middle of that argument. And now Judy doesn't know where she is. And Judy ends up talking to Donna's mother on the phone. And Donna's mother also does not approve of their relationship. There's no indication yet, uh, as as of issue six that we're reading now in Sandman, that there's particularly a connection between uh, the characters in the diner and other characters that we may have met previously. But uh, in future issues, we'll actually see that there's a little bit more there for folks to kind of dig into in retrospect um, later in the Sandman stories. But this is far down the line. But it, it very much is kind of slow world building that Neil is doing intentionally or otherwise. Uh, also here, we have uh, them watching a soap opera. The soap opera is called Secret Hearts. Secret Hearts is actually a – was a romance comic that DC produced. And at one point, actually, even in the early 80s, Supergirl – at that time, Supergirl, pre-crisis Supergirl – actually was a cast member, not as Supergirl, but as her alter ego, of the Secret Hearts soap opera. Well, this is a great inclusion here. And Gaiman does an absolutely awesome job of spoofing soap operas. I mean, there's a conjoined twin in one of the three panels that we get here of this soap opera. It's all awesome. But the television is really on, not for this joke. It, it's on because we're going to get to see a dinosaur puppet show called Dino's Kidvid Playhouse. And <laughs> what matters here, besides the fact that it's an awesome show I wish we had had, uh, is that D is able to control this live broadcast such that Dino the Dinosaur tells the kids that they should all slash their wrists and die. And of course, I couldn't help but be reminded here of the puppet episode of Angel. Uh, that's a good call. I hadn't actually thought about that while watching it, but uh, or while reading it. But uh, yeah, it, it very much is, is similar to that. Um, and this is where we also then see Dee really creepily find this hysterical. And perhaps the most joy we see of him to date and maybe even since like it's just uh this is perhaps the thing that he enjoys most is watching this children's television host go ahead and uh commit suicide after convincing other people or attempt to commit suicide after telling children to do the same yeah as we're actually going to see that he's a little bit numb to some of the other horrors that he starts inflicting on these people, which we are we are quickly approaching. But we've now gotten to the point where Mr. Fletcher actually realizes that nobody has left and nobody has come into the diner in hours. And uh, we're also told that Mrs. Fletcher had a strange dream last night, or maybe even a series of strange dreams. And we see Judy writing a letter to Donna apologizing for hitting her during their fight last night. And Judy writes that she only hurt Donna because she was scared of losing her. And wow, there's an entire story that is captured in just that one line. There's so much backstory there. Yeah, and I think it really turns the way the audience may feel about Judy at this point, because before we might have more found her to be very sympathetic. We might still find her a little sympathetic, but that she is the person who is perpetrating domestic abuse against her partner causes us all to, to pause a moment and, and think that, you know, even the character that may come across as the, you know, least judgmental and maybe even who we're identifying the most with in terms of love of Joy Division and punk rock, um, though has, you know, her own faults. 
No, I think that's exactly right. Right on the surface, she seems like someone that I would have loved to have been hanging around with in 1989 or a few years later when we were in high school, at least. But right now, we see that there's a real darkness that she has some some demons within her that she is 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 wrestling with as as well. And this note then is, I think, maybe what starts thematically anyway to introduce us to the real horrors that John D is going to start to inflict on them because here he's finally bored. And so he decides to make the the dreams of these customers come true. And in their dreams, uh, we see Mark, the young man, he is a corporate executive who's on the phone making big deals and big money in this like massive uh, panel here. It's great kind of nonsense you know, speak about let's do lunch and have your people call my people and just kind of a vague, you know, the way anyone who maybe is going to a job interview and doesn't fully even understand what the company is he's interviewing with and and what even their position would be, let alone what an executive director at that company would do. But I love how large the the back of that chair is for him. No, it's, it's massive. And I think this is exactly what I think corporate executives do. They just get on the phone and say money, money, money to people. I have no idea what that (laughs) job would actually entail. (laughs) Well, we also get Mr. Fletcher's dreams here. Uh, His name is Gary. His first name is Gary. And he is with a cheap hooker in his car. But the real excitement for him is that he is going to beat her up when they are done. And meanwhile, his wife, Kate Fletcher, is dreaming about having Gary's head on a silver platter with the sure knowledge that finally his infidelities are over. And this, this panel in particular, Kate's dream, the art is especially interesting. Yeah, we've got a kind of a bit from Andy Warhol's Marilyn Monroe in the back. Um, so kind of an idealized female figure persona. And But the, the detail that has gone into the platter that Gary's head is on, that Kate is carrying. And, and I can't quite tell if she's just wearing like an overgrown shirt that's kind of been, you know, that's partially not buttoned or if – that is a robe, or I, I can't quite tell what she's supposed to be wearing in this particular outfit. Right. The collar uh, the, the collar is not particularly well-defined here in the, the drawing, and so it is difficult to tell, and it is sort of oversized, but it also looks like it has kind of eyeballs on it, like uh, almost like she's Argus, right? The 100 eyeballs it has seen all of the infidelities, even as her husband has been thinking he's been hiding them from her. And I especially love the way that she is looking down at his head with real love and affection, like she's holding a baby in her arms. Yeah, it's it's very unsettling how delicate and thoughtful she is being and and caring about this head. And the head appears to be smiling up at her, too, as if, like, in her dreams, this is what Gary would want as well, is to be dead and have his head just be something that she could carry around. Yeah, or to be to be severed from his body because it's it's not his brain that is cheating on her. It's his the lusts of his body that he can't control, which of course is a, a terrible excuse. But you know, I could see his stories that he tells himself to justify his own actions are you know, of that mold. Oh yeah, I hadn't actually thought about that before, but yeah, I mean that makes sense that perhaps it's his thoughts and and you know who he truly is in his brain is 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 in love with and loyal to her. It is mere, merely kind of his flesh below the neck that is uh, continually failing him and failing their relationship then. Well, Dee is about to get even creepier in the eighth hour of these 24 hours when he, he walks around among the, the customers and experiences their 
pleasures. And we actually see the characters in the real world miming the actions that they're performing in their dreams. So it's really kind of like watching someone with VR goggles on, I, I guess. And it's it's real creepy. But this is where we learn that D is not getting all that much joy from this, not even from Mark's horrific dream of himself dead from alcoholism. Yeah, in fact, he says he finds even only fractional stimulation from watching Judy essentially masturbating in front of him. Yeah, and the only thing that does seem to bring him a little bit of joy here is watching the TV news report about what is happening in the outside world as a result of what he's doing with the Ruby. And these are reports of madness and bad dreams and suicide. I mean, this is a line that's basically straight out of the Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, and it's it's reported as something spreading across the state, but as we'll see later, it ends up being a worldwide phenomenon. And here again, um, I, intentionally or not, Neil Gaiman um, might have been making a joke on the way news programs are spun up that bad dreams, the news is at six, but it's something very important that maybe everybody should know right now and not wait till six. <laughs> but I guess, you know, in, in a world now of 24-7 news, they probably wouldn't have considered this an emergency banner full topic anyways, compared to if there was a tweet of some kind to cover so yeah exactly it's it's actually i mean it fills me with nostalgia of course to be reading these old comics but right it's hard actually even to imagine this story happening because we are all just so connected with our phones now that the idea that these people would be trapped in this diner having this experience and everyone on twitter wouldn't know about it already right is is kind of uh, boggling to us but I think he probably would have had to – D would have had to act sooner and more often to stop people from picking up their phones, to call people or to text or even to receive information like, hey, you're late for your job interview. Are you coming in? And then in uh, we go to hour nine and the next page gives us kind of uh, three snippets from hour nine, ten, and eleven that kind of splash across two pages. And hour nine, conflict he decides reveals character, which I think is – it's funny, except for also there's terrible things going on, because here we have Marsh just landing a punch square on Judy's face. So in hour nine, we've got them yelling at each other, particularly Marsh just telling Judy that if she just were raped, essentially, by him, then she would be fine. And then in hour ten, we cut to them loving him, in which um, they're all parading around. We see Mark holding a knife and staring at his hand, and then sure enough, he cuts off a finger and seems to kind of feed it to D after perhaps writing the word God in blood on D's chest. And D is very naked at this point as well, just to make it even more kind of off-putting how he looks compared to how the rest of them look. It's absolutely gruesome. And if this were in a film, right, like we wouldn't be able to go see this film in the in the theaters or certainly wouldn't have as teenagers anyway. And it's interesting because even then Dee's thoughts here is that he doesn't really want necessarily to, to lick the finger. But, you know, he needs to do what he can to fear to not appear ungracious towards the sacrifice, which is it, it feels a lot of like a humble brag. Yeah, it would be it would be rude to turn down such an important gift, uh, you know, some, something that has really genuinely come from uh, from the body of my own follower, and and this this ends with uh, now we finally actually get back to the the news. We're finally going to get like the real news report here, where yeah, we realize that this is a global problem and that there are serious disasters because people are falling asleep on the job, right? Like in the middle of performing surgeries or flying a plane and such, and so whatever 
whatever it is that D is doing with the the Ruby while he's here in this diner is now having these this global reach and really devastating global reach. Then we have a bunch of humor also interjected into this page of, you know, quite terrible things up to this point, um, where because none of the international superheroes are available, they're talking to the amazing Herschel and Betty. Well, just Herschel of the amazing Herschel and Betty. I imagine that Betty is probably like, I don't know, his pet gerbil or hamster or cat or maybe like a, you know, maybe a dog or something. But uh, he's convinced that it's probably Ray's. Right. And he, he is like the superhero who would be protecting Syracuse, New York or something like that. Right. If this is still upstate Gotham, you know, yeah, he's the local, he's the local superhero of, of Rochester or Binghamton yeah, or something like that. And he, he does not look very good. Well, after this, D decides to make the diner customers play truth or dare or something like that. Or at any rate, he's, he's going to make them tell their darkest secrets. We, we get an example of this, and it's a very creepy one. Mrs. Fletcher, Kate, snuck into a funeral home when she was younger and had sex with a corpse there. And that's creepy on its own. But what's really significant is that it was the best sex that she's ever had. And she can never quite recreate that experience. And so her sex life as an adult with her husband and so on has been just a disappointment compared to this act of necrophilia. There is a great Neil Gaiman story where, again, it's somewhat about necrophilia in which Snow White is essentially a vampire and Prince Charming teams up with Snow White because he is into necrophilia. And because her skin is so cold and she essentially, I believe she's a vampire in the story, or we're led to believe she's something of that, akin of that. Um, and so... Before, the Wicked Witch who was with Prince Charming couldn't ever be cold enough. He would always try to, like, make her body as cold as possible when they would have sex. But it, it just wasn't good enough for him. Um, but then finally, when he found this, like, actually undead thing, then they turned on her. And then, you know, the victors slash those who live tell the story. And so the story was told that she was wicked and terrible and that Snow White was not even though Snow White was this monster who took advantage of the fact that Prince Charming was into necrophilia <laughs> that's right i had completely forgotten about this story but now as soon as you've described it right i vividly remember reading this story when we were teenagers and yeah so i guess this is something of a maybe not a theme for neil gaming but it's a <laughs> it's, it's something he's at least going to to return to and perhaps even the idea really came to him here and then thought yeah there, there's a whole story there that's worth telling uh, it will be great we're, we'll, we'll cover that story someday perhaps when we're between volumes or when we're all done with sam and we'll do one of the short story collections so then we count to Hour 13, um, in which they get to know each other intimately. Um, and here we have uh, essentially an orgy that is going on behind the counter. And uh, in the annotated Sandman, again by Leslie Klinger, um, he has some notes from Neil Gaiman from the script in which Neil explains that they can get away with a lot of stuff from DC, but they probably wouldn't be able to get away with any of what they'd wanted to depict here, which is just as well. Um, and so everything in the action should be occurring kind of below frame. And I think it was really clever the way it's done where it's occurring, you know, below also the, the height of the bar top here. Although really ominously, there's that hammer and nails in the first panel just kind of sitting out. And D just kind of says neat here. It's like his commentary as he's watching this thing that he is making them do for his own amusement. He doesn't actually seem all that into it, which uh, is maybe a sad story in some way. 
Well, and here again, I, I I need to call this out. In the annotated Sandman, there is a note that Leslie Clare includes regarding the last panel of D. I hadn't quite thought about this, but Neil pointed out that his hand may look like it's in his lap. But uh, apparently in the script, the idea is that uh, anything he had resembling genitalia probably had gone away along with the rest of most of his flesh before. And so he is clearly not supposed to be masturbating while seeing this. Um, so he is just kind of curiosity. I mean, intellectually considering it to be neat. It's kind of, it's, I mean, it's a strange juxtaposition, but I think it tells us so much about who he is and what he's up to as well. But the, the next bit of the story we have is, uh, I, I think maybe the most interesting part of this issue where now D wants to know the future. And so he has Judy, Bet, and then also Kate Fletcher act as the fates here, right? The maiden, the mother, and the crone, who we met just a, a few issues ago. And I love the way that they take on these personas, and they tell him two futures. And the first is that he will end his life back in Arkham Asylum, but Dee doesn't like this, and so he has them do it again. And this time, they tell him that he will kill Dream and steal the rest of his powers, and the deal is, right, that this first fortune is going to turn out to be true. And so I have to wonder, are these women somehow actually the fates in this moment? Are they really seeing the future because of the power of this ruby? Yeah, it's not clear to me, And which maybe they are the future in the first panel and then not in the... It seems that the wish fulfillment they give him in at the end of the page versus kind of what they're telling him. Because what they're telling him does seem like it maybe is what may transpire to him. We also have this ominous clock that appears on this page, also appears later in the comic. Um, so this clock, which is uh, also the one that Lucifer seems to be either holding or has in his sitting on a table of some kind um, when uh, Dream is first in hell to try to get back his helm and he's uh, talking to Lucifer and Beelzebub and Azizel. There's there's that clock, and it's showing um, more or less the same time um, in all of these pictures, where it looks like it's uh, right around 12.10, or it could be that it's 2 o'clock, depending on which of those is long and which of those is short, which is hard for me to tell. Yeah, it's not clear which is the longhand and which is the shorthand here. But yeah, this is a great catch. And and this is a really interesting clock in that it is, you know, it's a, it's a, a standard analog clock but it's enclosed in in glass and then the clock is really also kind of a a sculpture and so beneath the clock face there are uh three people holding up the clock who i guess are probably supposed to be the fates then right that this is them telling you know managing time i guess right and 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 monitoring our fortunes or the hours of our lives i suppose so maybe um What's we're supposed to be getting out of this is that here are the fates are present, um, in some way at least here as maybe they were otherwise witnesses to what was going on in hell as well. Um, as we'll see, the fates kind of have a recurring role appearing in sometimes as witnesses and sometimes more as actors than uh, you'd expect throughout the Sandman comics. So it could be that here these are supposed to be the Hecate. Um, being presented. But again, they start with, you come from dust, you walk with dust, you go back to dust. They then, he asks what his future is. They, he doesn't seem to like the answer though, and says, tell my future and, uh, and yells it at them. And they seem to tell him more what he thinks he wants to hear. 
Yes, absolutely. I think that that second fortune is, is they know that they're lying to him in that moment. But it's, yeah, the first one is going to turn out to be true. And, and I find that, I think that's really compelling. I'm glad you identified this clock. It's basically like all the times that oranges show up in The Godfather, right? It clues us in that something important is happening, I guess. I had noticed the clock and it struck me as strange in this uh, particular issue. And I vaguely recalled that I maybe had seen it before. But again, Klinger's Annotated Sandman was the one that actually directed me to issue four. Well, we're going to get a brief scene now here in which D finally stops controlling uh, all of these diner customers, but it's only going to be temporary. And he's doing this only so that they can realize what they've been up to. And of course, right, this is absolutely horrifying for them. And this might actually be the cruelest thing that he does to them, right, is make them aware of all of these deeds. Yeah, at this point, you know, they're, they're, they've, aware of what's going on. They don't understand why he's doing it to them. And he says, because I can. Well, and then it does get worse when he makes them play a party game called Murder in the Dark, though, uh, you know, counting who's still alive when the lights come back on, it doesn't seem that anyone was actually murdered unless maybe it was the fry cook who we had just hadn't seen previously. <laughs> but hour 17 is time for confession and penance. And Marsh and Bat have been having an affair for years, long before Marsh's wife drank herself to death. And in fact, we learn here that Marsh bought a crate of vodka and left it in his house with his wife and then went away for a week. And when he got back, she was in the hospital dying. And essentially, he killed her. And he's aware of that, right? This is the way that he thinks about it. And this by itself is pretty awful, but his confession is not over. When he was in jail for mail fraud... Bet's son, Bernie, was in the same prison, and Bernie would prostitute himself for cigarettes, and at least once, Marsh had sex with him. So Bet here has to learn that her lover has also had sex with her son. And while this confession is going on, Bet is hammering nails into Marsh's hand. And we hadn't talked about this earlier um, in the issue, but when Bet is thinking about her son and the fact that he had moved away to the city and not come back, but she had hoped that he would someday. Um, so she has no idea of what's happened to his, her son. There's no indication that she uh, n- knows that he has been put into prison, let alone that he then is prostituting himself for cigarettes. But here it turns out that Marsh all along um, has been holding out on Bet, who he's had a relationship with this whole time, to not tell her, oh, by the way, I, I know where your son is, and he's in prison, and also, you know, I had sex with him in prison. And so it's, she's looking very squeamish at the point in which he's hammering one of the nails into his hand that she's being forced to kind of hold there. But the thing that's causing her to, to really, I think, grimace about the whole thing is that, that she doesn't want to hear about what befell her son and that also the man she's been sleeping with it has done these terrible things and, and withheld this information from her. Yeah. He's an absolutely terrible person. Uh, Marsh might be one of the sort of really most just grotesque characters I've ever encountered in literature, especially, you know, it may not really have been his own volition, but the, the, the threatening to, to rape Judy until she'll become a heterosexual earlier, right. Does not, is not a good selling point for his character either. Uh, but I'm glad you corrected me here because I, I said that Bet is hammering the nails into Marsh's hand. Uh, I actually hadn't noticed looking at the art before. I think something about the angles there that that's not right. It's only that she's holding them. He's, he's the one doing the hammering into his own hand. 
yeah, he is being forced to confess and also perform what Dee's head, I guess, has as the act of penance for this. And she's just the one who is forced to listen and assist him. And like, that's her punishment here. And then we move ahead to hour 18. He brings out the beast in them. And here we have Marsh. It looks like he's slumped on the floor with his hand still nailed into the table behind him. There's blood on his face. It's not entirely clear whether the blood is because he's been attacked in some other way. Or I guess there's a mention that he's well, he's uh, gnawing at his trapped front leg. So. Well, what D is doing to them at this point is making them behave like animals. And so, yeah, the idea of sort of gnawing off your own limb to get out of a trap, that might be the animal thing that Marsh is doing. And then we see that the women are cowering under a, a table while Mr. Fletcher and Mike are going to fight over sexual access to them, you know, like they're, they're dogs or, or wolves or something like that. And Mr. Fletcher wins this fight and he rips out Mark's throat. There's just the, the gruesomeness of this just keeps ratcheting up each panel. Well, we're very near the end of this story now. Then the next few hours just get a panel or two each. And we see John D telling the story of, of Snow White to the customers and, uh, which is actually pretty great, right? This is now the second time we've thought about Snow White in this story. <laughs> and the three women sing the sting song, spread a little happiness. But Judy pokes out her eyes so that she can see the true glory that John D has told her about now that he's he's being this religious figure. And then they're all dead, lying on the floor or the, the seats of the diner because D has killed them all or, or made them kill themselves and each other and so on. And now Dia's all alone, just twirling the ruby on its chain and waiting. You and I know that song from Sting doing it in the 80s, but uh, originally it's actually from um, the musical Mr. Cinders from 1929, uh, and it was first recorded by Benny Hale. Uh, yeah, I originally heard Sting's voice uh, as I was reading it myself. I had did not know about the fact that it originally was in a musical from 29. No, I didn't either. I did not know that was a cover. I always thought that was a, a, a song that he had written, actually. So here then, in hour 22, as, as you mentioned, he, they're, all, they're all dead. And uh, I think that's supposed to be Bet's head uh, at his feet. There is Marsh, whose arm was uh, severed. It looks like earlier we had seen Bet with a meat cleaver earlier, so perhaps she's the one who cut off uh, his arm. It looks like the Fletchers are maybe both dead, but also copulating with each, or at least she is copulating with his part of his dead body. Uh, but we have the clock, again, in the bottom corner, again, reflecting the same time. It's either, it must be two o'clock is what's going on. So again, I don't know if this is supposed to be that the fates are present and aware of what's going on, or if it's a connection with hell, um, as this very much seems like hell on earth. I'm not sure what to make of all that. Do you have any thoughts, Glenn? I don't. And I just don't know that this is going to carry on past the, the Preludes and Nocturnes volume or how far deep into the story this clock is going to keep appearing. It's not something that I remember really from this. I hope it will keep appearing. But at least here in these moments, I think that your instinct to think that uh, this has to has to be signifying that perhaps like a, just a particularly important moment is, is happening, right? That So that the fates are, are clued in here, right? But one hopes that the fates are not having to watch us all brush our teeth twice a day, right? That they're only cluing into dramatic moments like this. Well, I don't know. Sometimes I brush my teeth and it's very dramatic. Um. <laughs> yeah, you're known for that. 
And finally, the protagonist of our comic book series enters frame. Right. And and D just says, I'm glad you're here. It was starting to get a bit boring. But you don't look strong enough to make it interesting, do you? And so we are all set for our showdown in the next issue. This issue is always, I think, a hard one for me to read, Glenn. I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on it, but I always um, – I think I remember it's coming. I think I always forget how painfully long these 24 pages or so kind of play out. Um, I think because I forget all of the how long it goes, it, it just ends up being that much more kind of painful and cringy to kind of read through. And it's well written, um, but I think – I'm not a big fan of horror comics, and so it's one of those things where I read through it because I care a lot about the Sandman stories as a whole, but it's very hard for me to read. Although I think part of that is also a testimony to how good I find the storytelling here, where I feel bad for these characters that Neil Gaiman has presented to us, even with their failings. I feel bad for the terrible thing that none of them deserve this kind of treatment by John D. And, you know, the art does just enough to provide the horror without going so far into kind of, you know, viscera for the sake of viscera. Although it very much is kind of a story in the kind of what would later in film be the torture porn kind of um, genre. I think you've aptly and accurately described exactly what what, it, what is happening here and, and responses to it. You said painfully long, and I felt that way too. It's the same number of pages as any regular issue of a comic book is, but it felt like it was a story that just wouldn't end. And it wasn't that I was uninterested in the story or that it's like written poorly or something. It's just that it is so intense and it's so gruesome that I didn't want to be being exposed to it. And it's a... It's kind of shocking to have that here, you know, just so early in this story. And and I was even trying to envision just, you know, being someone who uh, heard that there was going to be a, you know, a sort of Sandman reboot comic with a twist on it. And maybe I'll check that out for a few issues. And I, this is what I pick up in the comic shop this month and take this home and, and read this sort of in between uh, a volume of, of, of Spider-Man and the JLA or something like that, that this is a totally different tone for a comic book, you know, with the DC imprint on it. And we've gotten a little bit of horror before. I mean, we had the episode with uh, uh, John Constantine in which there was the, the house that was, you know, thoroughly disgusting and had that, you know, whole room or hallway that was the living insides of the the woman's father. And, but this is this is not while John D is able because of the powers the Ruby gives him to make them stay and to make them do these terrible things. The things that they're doing are all things like, I'm not about to take a hammer and put a nail in my own hand, but like those are not, you know, getting shot with a ray gun or something. It's so it's there's something more visceral and um, kind of relatable about kind of the terribleness of this. Um, well, right, because we could we could see this happening to ourselves in our own lives or, or hear this happening to someone we know, right? This is mundane violence. It's not speculative fiction violence, even though it it's it it is speculative fiction in its origins. And I guess that's really one of the things that we're seeing here is that it's not necessarily just that people are doing awful things to each other, but that what we're seeing is the ripple effect of 
Burgess, Roderick Burgess, having broken the universe, having interrupted the 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 well oiled machinery of the universe, and screwing everything up, right? That this is part of the cascade effect of having imprisoned Dream and then having stolen these tools from him. That these are that the universe is not supposed to be behaving this way. And it is quite the departure from the issue before where we've got, you know, Dream hanging out with Mr. Miracle and uh, John Jones, the uh, Martian Manhunter, you know, as he's thinking about going getting his Oreos. And I mean, this is this is a very different thing, although, you know, we got a taste of the, the terror of what was going on with John D getting the ride from the, the woman he had kidnapped and kind of the him being pretty terrible to her. But in some ways she got off easier than these folks who were tortured for 22 hours before they you know finally were killed we're going to see more of this i think this is really the last of it here in this first story arc but the the next story arc also is going to have some of this where we're going to see some of the the consequences of dream having been imprisoned and the dream world having got into a state of decay and there being no one to 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 rule the the dream creatures. And I think this is a really, you know, compelling idea that Gaiman has. And we've talked already about the way that Gaiman is using that idea in some ways to offer kind of a, a critique of high modernity of sort of showing or suggesting that in some ways kind of the the more awful aspects of our own culture, our society, our behaviors uh, might be as the result of something breaking down about the way the universe is supposed to function. And this is a theme that he's not done with yet and, and may persist really all the way through this series. It's interesting to me, DC superheroes have this problem, uh, the Superman problem, where he's so powerful that you um, either need to have, you know, well, there's kryptonite, um, or you have to deal with something so universal and terrible to affect him, or you just have to put in peril, you know, the, the normal humans who he interacts with. And so, I mean, I, I, I wonder at this point, because so much energy is put into talking about how powerful this ruby is, you know, if Sandman comes out okay, and, and spoilers, you know, eventually he does, the idea that we're increasingly setting up how powerful he is, it, it does create a lot of options for the writer to do things with that character, but it also uh, it raises the difficulty in providing as a writer kind of a, an antagonist that would be worthy of causing a problem to this character. Because if D, who does not have all of the other, does not have the pouch of sand and the helm and the eons of experience being the manifest manifestation of dream. If he just has a ruby that has some of dreams power, admittedly, he got some more when dream uh, reacted to it last at the end of last issue. But again, I think you're right that it, this shows kind of the Roderick Burgess, the damage that Roderick has done, that kind of rippling forward still, but it also then shows how powerful a manifestation in person that dream can be. Um, and so I think it becomes a challenge then to write, you know, something that dream will not be able to deal with given that this is what he can do to people who are awake. And ultimately we're going to see this story shift away from 
mundanities like this as the the series progresses and you know as we get into that it will be great to talk about how much of this game it already had planned out and conceived of versus how much of it was being made up on the fly because perhaps he had actually trapped himself with these types of, of details that you're you're pointing out here uh, and that will be a lot of fun to do so what are your thoughts on the cover glenn yeah, I love this cover. It's real creepy. So we've got uh, the the central image here is just really just black. And then these kind of uh, almost spectral hands, uh, we're really seeing the palms of these hands outstretched as if they are protecting a face behind them, right from some horrific thing, or like perhaps the, the snarling jaws of, a, of a, a werewolf or Mr. Fletcher thinking he's a wolf. Uh, and then just one little eyeball that we see behind that. But I thought that this was probably supposed to be D here. Is that what you think, Brent? You know, I can't tell. The one eyeball does make it seem like it's kind of a creepy, almost E.T. looking <laughs> eyeball, um, a little shriveled skin so that it might be D. But I mean, we've seen not in this issue, but we've seen otherwise D kind of being this, you know, wretched figure who uh, is very kind of childlike and, and kind of scared of others harming him. And so he is lashing out. So it might be him being terrible. But um, I mean, being you know, fearful of something, but it, to me, it's, it's specifically as kind of a nondescript, um, person. And then on the, uh, you know, running down the, the vertical edges of this image, as there always is something, a kind of cabinet of curiosities are faces, different types of faces. Some of them are, are photographs. Some of them are masks. One of them even is a sackcloth that has, uh, eye holes and a mouth hole cut, out of it uh one's an x-ray of a of a skull and yeah i i took this to be our cast of characters here our cast of customers perhaps not a kind of one-for-one equation but this idea that we're getting a, a a study of of messed up individuals in this issue yeah and and there's a looks like electrodes connected to a couple of the individuals in that too as if they're being studied but kind of in a you know, terrible, or maybe not so much studied as maybe that's supposed to be that they're being electrocuted. Um, and it's supposed to be like an electroshock kind of thing going on. But, uh, yeah, and we have a, a broken coffee mug. That's the thing that really represents the diner here. And in one of them, we actually have a little pocket watch as well, though the hands have been taken off. So I, I was eager to look at that actually and see if it was also two o'clock, but the hands have been removed. But we do have a clock here again. Well, we have a clock here, and because the hands have been removed, it also then reflects with the title that it could be representing all of the 24 hours or any one of them. And, I mean, what are your thoughts on the title of this particular issue? I mean, it's it's a very kind of antiseptic title. It is. This is perhaps the, the easiest one. There's not maybe all that much of a conversation to have here, right? The The title is 24 hours, and the story is divided into 24 hours, 24 little vignettes. And of course, this is also uh, the sign on the diner, the all-night diner. The other sign that it has is 24 hours. So what's your favorite panel, if favorite is the word to have in this particular issue? Well, what I'm going to pick might be cheating a little bit, but I'm going to pick the entire page of Hour 23, which is really, really... So, so was I. <laughs> 
So we have a unanimous favorite panel, by which we mean cheating. Um, I was going to go with just the bottom middle one, because we only had to pick one. But why don't you talk about your rationale, and then uh, I have something I, from the Annotated Sandman that I thought was interesting uh, to come off of this, too. Right. Well, fantastic. Yeah. So this, this could be kind of a, 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 a twofer, or a oneer, I guess, in this, this particular segment of this, this episode. So what I really liked about this was just how bored John D is, and that how it gives us this sense of time as he is twirling with his toy that you know basically just playing with something he's got in his pocket and then there's a there's this insect buzzing around you know presumably it's a fly because they're in the diner with the, the food which he then eats and but just looking bored he's he's killed all of his toys the the customers uh in in the diner and he just looks like a little kid who's caused some mayhem and doesn't know what to do with himself and to me although he's certainly a horrific character who does absolutely belong in arkham asylum there's something kind of sympathetic here right where we just see that he's a person who is completely broken and, and damaged and damaged by exposure to this ruby that he's not supposed to have right and this is again where we have these sort of ripple effects from the the the, the imprisonment of dream yeah and in the annotated sandman um, by leslie klinger um, he notes that neil gaiman had noted in the script or directed in the script here that that john d would be putting something in his mouth probably a raisin he expected it was a raisin uh, and he's chewing on it uh, and i think that actually it works out brilliantly not just in like a cheap way because of the references to flies being stuck in the web way back in the beginning of the issue. But I think that the decision that I'm assuming at some point, either the editorial team or the artists made of making it a fly that he is eating makes it that much kind of both twisted as well as sad that if it was just, he was eating a raisin, I, it wouldn't probably show up as well on the panel, but it's kind of his heartlessness. And that again, that's a, a living thing he's just eating and, also, it's kind of the grossness of like, you're just, you're eating a fly. Like that's, you're, you're at a diner where there's food and you're literally just eating a fly. Well, there's a connection to the character Renfield from Dracula as well, who is eating insects all the time in anticipation of Dracula coming to England. And he's doing this because he wants to be like Dracula, right? He thinks that he's going to become a vampire somehow, that he's kind of uh, training to be the the next Dracula. And that is exactly what D is doing here in this panel, right? He wants to usurp and replace Dream and perhaps in some way even thinks that the things he's been doing with this Ruby are the types of things that Dream does. Yeah, and it could be you know, as with Renfield trying to consume living things, that fly that he eats on this page could be the last living thing in the diner other than himself. Oh, yes. Right. So he really has killed all of the flies in his web. Yeah, that's a that's a great observation. Well, I think on this particularly horrific note, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of this issue. And I think I'd be particularly interested to to know what you think is going on with the clock. Yeah, I would too, uh, particularly if there's any thoughts as to why two o'clock. 
But uh, next issue, uh, issue seven, Sound and Fury, um, we're promised that it's called Dreams End at the end of this issue six. But uh, um, as with the last few issues, the actual title of the issue does change up once we get it. So Sound and Fury. So again, we can channel our inner Shakespeare. Yes. And until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>